Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we award your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. In this episode, we delve into the 2023 Nobel Prizes for attosecond lasers, quantum dots and mRNA vaccines. But first, here's news of electric worm travel. Superpowered worms! Not quite magneto. Japanese researchers have discovered tiny Caenorhabditis elegans nematode worms use electric fields to jump extremely fast to hitch a flight on bumblebees. The worms are just one millimeter long. Japanese scientists working with nematodes noticed one day that several cultivated worms in the lab mysteriously kept ending up attached to the lids of petri dishes instead of the agar jelly on the bottom of the dish, where they were put. Intrigued, they conducted experiments to figure out how the worms were getting from one point to the other in less than a second. The researchers found that rather than crawling up the walls of the dish, the worms were leaping from the bottom of the plate to the lid, and they were using electric fields to do it. They could even leap from the petri dish onto a bumblebee, both individually and in large clusters of worms. Pollinators, such as insects and hummingbirds, are known to be electrically charged, and it's believed that pollen is attracted by the electric field formed by the pollinator and the plant. Until now, it was not completely clear whether electric fields are used for the interactions between different terrestrial animals. In addition to pollinators, the authors note that several species of fish can use electric fields to sense prey and predators. And ballooning spiders, immortalised in E.B. White's classic Charlotte's Web, shoot out silk threads to form a parachute and electrostatically float off into the air. When one species relies on another species for dispersal, it's known as foracy. Smaller animals that are wingless and legless like worms frequently attached to passing larger animals like insects and birds to cross large distances. Canorhabditis elegans is found on a wide range of species and relies on a type of foracy to achieve that range. Nematodes engage in a weird-looking behaviour known as nictation, where the worms stand on their tails. Decreasing the surface tension of the water in which the nematodes are usually found, making it easier for the worms to attach to the dispersal hosts. It also increases the frequency of direct contact with other animals because they're sticking up. There are videos of nematode worms standing on their tails. I'll embed some in the show notes. There's also videos of the jumping worms. Flying insects like bumblebees naturally accumulate charge during flight, producing an electric field. The researchers thought 
that electrostatic interactions might explain why their lab-grown nematodes kept ending up on the lid of the Petri dish. The first experiments confirmed that the worms weren't crawling up the walls of the Petri dish. It took high-speed video for the team to be able to catch the leaping motion on camera and confirm that the worms stand on their tails before making the leaps. The worms did not appear to be generating the leaping force, suggesting an external force was at work. To find out whether that external force was electric fields, the researchers conducted another experiment. They embedded a square array of microposts on the surface of the agar jelly, mimicking a natural soil environment. They placed about 1500 worms on that agar substrate and then placed it atop a glass electrode. They put a second glass electrode parallel to the first, but separated by a small distance. Next, they applied a voltage to see what happened. The worms only leapt to the other electrode when the charge was applied and moved at an average speed of 0.86 meters per second. That's close to the speed of a human walking and their speed increased as the electric field intensified. However, for their body length of one millimeter, the equivalent for a human to move the same number of body lengths I calculate would be for humans to leap at over 1500 meters per second, which is pretty fast. Finally, the team rubbed flower pollen on bumblebees to create an electric charge the equivalent of the charge that wild bumblebees carry, and placed the bees near the worms. When the bees were sufficiently close, the worms stood on their tails and jumped to the bees. This even worked for clusters of worms piled on top of each other, with one poor overladen worm carrying the load during transfer. The mechanism of electric fields might now be clear, but the researchers still aren't sure exactly how all of this works. But the researchers still aren't sure exactly how all of this works. Fortunately, Canorabditis elegans is a model organism, and the relationship between its genes, behaviour and neural activity have been widely studied. Therefore, the authors concluded, further studies on the electric field and the behaviour of Canorabditis elegans are expected to provide more details on the electrical ethology of microorganisms. Their paper was titled, Canorabditis elegans transfers across a gap under an electric field as dispersal behaviour, and was published in the journal Current Biology. The 2023 Nobel Prize in Physics was shared by Anne Louillard, Pierre Agostini and Frank Krauss for developing lasers that can pulse in extremely fast strobes to allow us to see the movement of electrons in molecules and atoms. The pulses last attoseconds, which is 10 to the minus 18 seconds or one billionth of a billionth of a second. These attosecond lasers have applications in physics, chemistry, biology, and medicine. In photography, capturing clear images of fast objects requires a camera with a fast shutter or a fast strobe of light to eliminate the object. By taking multiple photos in quick succession, the motion of the object can be clearly resolved. 
the time scale of the shutter or the strobe must match the time scale of motion of the object. If not, the image will be blurred. This same idea applies when researchers attempt to image the ultrafast motion of electrons. Capturing attosecond scale motion requires an attosecond strobe. In 1987, Anne Lewillier and her collaborators at an institute that later became a part of Paris-Saclay University were studying ionised argon. When they exposed the gas to infrared laser light, it produced photons in a series of higher frequencies, meaning that the individual particles emitted by the argon had higher energies than those in the laser light that triggered them. All of those frequencies were overtones of the initial laser light, like repeating the same note on a piano, but at higher octaves. Luilia and the other researchers, including physicist Paul Corkum, then working at the National Research Council of Canada in Ottawa, soon worked out the physics of how the gas generated these higher harmonic frequencies. This led to the discovery of a phenomenon called recollision. They used femtosecond lasers to make attosecond lasers with recollision. Imagine the electrons in an atom are constrained within the atom by a wall. Femtoseconds are 10 to the minus 15 seconds, or a quadrillionth of a second. When pulses from a high-powered femtosecond laser are directed at atoms of a noble gas such as argon, the strong electric field in the pulse lowers the wall. This happens because the electric field of the laser is comparable in strength to the electric field of the nucleus of the atom. Electrons see this lowered wall and can pass through by using quantum tunneling. As soon as the electrons exit the atom, the laser's electric field captures them, accelerates them to high energies, and then slams them back into their parent atoms. This process of recollision results in creation of attosecond bursts of laser light. Realising that these higher frequencies could be used to generate extremely short pulses, Luilia embarked on a program to increase the intensity of the higher harmonics. In 2001, a team led by Pierre Agostini, also at Paris-Saclay, was the first to succeed at turning higher harmonics into attosecond pulses. He developed a technique to measure the duration of pulses and confirm that they were in the attosecond regime, which no one had ever done before. Initially, the attosecond pulses came too close to one another to be useful. To use them to investigate attosecond processes, researchers needed isolated pulses. Achieving this would require starting from very short laser pulses, at most a few thousand attoseconds. In the late 1990s, Ferenc Krauss at the Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics in Germany developed techniques to generate short, isolated pulses. In a 2001 experiment, Krauss combined his laser with high harmonic generation to produce pulses that lasted just 650 attoseconds, breaking the 1000 attosecond barrier for the first time. In the following years, Krauss's group and others used the technique to perform a series of pioneering attosecond science experiments. Researchers measured the speed of the photoelectric effect, in which light rips electrons off an atom. Albert Einstein was awarded his Nobel Prize for explaining the photoelectric effect in 1921. 
physicists had known that this was a complicated process and assumed that the electron was not released instantaneously. But until attosecond science was possible, there was no way to measure the actual duration. Soon, the techniques were applied not only to individual atoms, but also to molecules and even to solids and liquids. Attosecond pulses can reveal what happens immediately after a molecule loses an electron and becomes ionized. The remaining electrons begin to rearrange themselves long before the atomic nuclei even realize that anything has happened. Researchers are now working to extend the techniques to attochemistry. They plan to use light pulses to guide the formation and breaking of bonds in ways that would not happen on their own. To make movies of electrons moving in pump probe spectroscopy, a pump pulse gets the electron moving and starts the movie. A probe pulse then lights up the electron at different times after the arrival of the pump pulse, so it can be captured by the camera, such as a photoelectron spectrometer. The photoelectron spectrometer detects how many electrons were removed from the atom by the probe pulse, or a photon spectrometer can measure how much of the probe pulse was absorbed by the atom. The different scenes are then stitched together to make the attosecond movies of electrons. Researchers have used attosecond laser imaging to measure where the electric charge is located in organic molecules at different times. In the future, this may allow them to control electric currents on the molecular scale, either for chemical reactions or for tiny switches a million times faster than current electronics. They could also be used to create even smaller microchips. Anne Lewillier is the fifth woman ever to have been awarded the Physics Nobel Prize. Of 221 previous winners, just four have been women. Marie Curie in 1903 for her work on radiation phenomena, Maria Gopert Meyer in 1963 for unpicking some of the details of atomic structure, Donna Strickland in 2018 for work in laser physics, and Andrea Gez in 2020 for research into supermassive black holes. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Canadian Radio Network and podcasts over the internet on diffusionradio.com. The 2023 Nobel Prize in Chemistry was awarded to Alexei Ekimov, Louis Bruss, and Maungi Bawendi for the discovery and development of quantum dots. These nanoparticles are so small that their size determines their properties. Quantum dots are nanoscale crystals that interact with light in unusual ways. Quantum dots can now be found in computer monitors and television screens and even help biochemists and surgeons map and image tissues to remove tumours. Physicist Richard Feynman speculated on what could be possible through nanoscale engineering as early as 1959. And engineers like Eric Drexler were speculating about the possibilities of atomically precise manufacturing in the 1980s. Quantum dots are semiconductor crystals consisting of just a few thousand atoms, which have some properties of single atoms. This allows them to be tuned so they can emit specific wavelengths of light when illuminated. Quantum dots brilliantly fluoresce. They absorb one colour of light and re-emit it nearly instantaneously as another colour. Their colour is determined by how large or small they are. Very small quantum dots of cadmium selenide can emit 
blue light, but bigger crystals of the same compound emit red light. Rather than depending on chemical bonds to determine the wavelengths of light they absorb and emit, as with traditional chemical dyes, quantum dots rely on very small clusters of semiconducting materials. It's the quantum physics of these clusters that determines what wavelengths of light are emitted, and this in turn depends on how large or small the clusters are. Alexei Ekimov in Russia was first to report observing size-dependent light effects in coloured glass doped with copper chloride particles in 1981. Two years later, Louis Bruss described making quantum dots in a solution while looking at semiconducting particles for solar energy applications. In 1993, Maungi Bawendi discovered a way to make quantum dots in specific sizes, combining inorganic and organometallic techniques for precise control. The method involved injecting the chemical ingredients into a hot solvent until it became saturated, causing crystals to form suddenly. When the mixture was removed from the heat, the growth of the crystals slowed down. The resulting dots were all of the same size and quality, which is what is required for industry. As quantum dots reach the nanoscale, the electrons start to be confined by the size of their surroundings. Once that size becomes smaller than the natural volume that an electron can move around in, the electrons respond by changing their energy levels. This changes how those systems interact with light. Being able to tune how a particle interacts with light could help engineers develop low-cost optical detectors and sensors and more efficient solar panels. It's also possible to integrate quantum dots into materials with unique shapes, textures and densities. Quantum dots are a little bit like pretend atoms that act like real ones, and they're now being developed for quantum computers. Researchers can fabricate devices with the properties of quantum dots on a silicon chip, and then manipulate the spin of individual electrons trapped in them. Both types of quantum dots are small, and confinement of electrons in the quantum dots leads to quantized orbitals, like in atoms. In late August, the Nobel Foundation announced it would be inviting ambassadors from Russia and Belarus to the Nobel Prize Award ceremony in December. Days later, it reversed the decision, following an angry public reaction. When asked whether Russian-born Ekimov would be able to accept his award in person, Hans Ellegren, Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences, told the press conference that when it comes to selecting for the Nobel Prize, we simply follow the procedure of identifying the most important discoveries. Having done that, we identify the most important contributors to those findings. That means nationality does not matter here. Researchers believe that in the future, quantum dots could contribute to flexible electronics, tiny sensors, thinner solar cells, and encrypted quantum communication. So we've just barely started exploring the potential of these tiny particles. The 2023 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine was awarded jointly to Catalan Carrico and Drew Weissman for their discoveries concerning base modifications that enabled the development of effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. Carrico and Weissman discovered a way to deliver mRNA into cells without triggering an unwanted immune response by swapping one type of molecule uridine in the genetic material with a similar one called pseudouridine. Vaccination stimulates an immune response to a particular pathogen. This gives the body a head start in the fight against disease when later exposed to that pathogen. 
vaccines based on killed or weakened viruses have long been available, such as the vaccine against polio, measles and yellow fever. In 1951, Max Tyler was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for developing the yellow fever vaccine. With weakened viruses, there's a small risk that the virus will evolve back into a virulent form and cause disease. In recent decades, vaccines have been developed based on proteins from parts of viruses rather than whole viruses. Parts of the viral genetic code that encode proteins found on the virus surface are used to make proteins that stimulate the formation of virus-blocking antibodies. Good examples are the vaccines against the hepatitis B virus and the human papillomavirus. In a different kind of vaccine, parts of the viral genetic code can be moved to a harmless carrier virus, a vector. This method is used in vaccines against the Ebola virus. When vector vaccines are injected, the selected viral protein is produced in our cells by our cells, stimulating an immune response against the targeted virus. Vector viruses have the problem of stimulating an immune response against the harmless carrier virus, making later vaccines based on the same vector unusable. Producing whole virus, protein and vector-based vaccines requires large-scale cell culture. This is resource-intensive and limits the possibilities for rapid vaccine production in response to outbreaks and pandemics. So researchers have attempted for a long time to develop vaccine technologies independent of cell culture, but it's always proved challenging. In our cells, genetic information encoded in DNA is transferred to messenger RNA, mRNA, which is used as a template for protein production. During the 1980s, efficient methods for producing mRNA without cell culture were introduced called in vitro transcription. In vitro transcribed memory RNA was considered unstable and challenging to deliver because it required the development of sophisticated carrier lipid systems to encapsulate the mRNA. Carrier lipid systems are little fat containers to carry the mRNA, and they're hard to make. Even worse, in vitro produced mRNA caused harmful inflammatory reactions. Catalan Carrico suffered skepticism around her work in the 1990s that led to numerous grant proposal and paper rejections, including the 2005 paper for which she's now being recognised, and she was forced to take a demotion and a pay cut. Drew Weissman joined her at the University of Pennsylvania. He was interested in dendritic cells, which have important functions in immune surveillance and the activation of vaccine-induced immune responses. Together, they noticed that dendritic cells recognise in vitro transcribed mRNA as a foreign substance, which leads to the activation and the release of inflammatory signalling molecules. They wondered why the in vitro transcribed mRNA was recognised as foreign, while mRNA from mammalian cells did not give rise to the same reaction. RNA contains four bases, A, U, G and C, which correspond to the A, T, G and C in DNA. Carrico and Weissman knew that the bases in RNA from mammalian cells are frequently chemically modified, while in vitro transcribed mRNA is not. They wondered if the absence of chemically altered bases in the in vitro transcribed RNA could explain the unwanted inflammatory reaction. To find out, they produced different variants of mRNA, each with unique chemical alterations in their bases, which they delivered to dendritic cells. 
they found that the inflammatory response was almost completely abolished when base modifications were included in the memory RNA. This was a huge change in our understanding of how cells recognise and respond to different forms of mRNA. Carrico and Weissman immediately understood that their discovery had profound significance for using mRNA as therapy. These results were published in 2005, 15 years before the COVID-19 pandemic. In further studies published in 2008 and 2010, Carrico and Weissman showed that the delivery of memory RNA generated with base modifications majorly increased protein production compared to unmodified memory RNA. The effect was due to the reduced activation of an enzyme that regulates protein production. In 2010, several companies were working on developing the method. Vaccines against Zika virus and MERS were pursued. MERS is closely related to SARS-CoV-2, COVID. After the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, two base-modified memory RNA vaccines encoding the SARS-CoV-2 surface protein were developed at record speed. Protective effects of around 95% were reported and both vaccines were approved as early as December 2020 in the US. The incredible flexibility and speed with which memory RNA vaccines can be developed paved the way for using the new platform also for vaccines against other infectious diseases. In the future, the technology could also be used to deliver therapeutic proteins and treat some types of cancer. More than 13 billion COVID-19 vaccine doses have been given globally. The vaccines have saved millions of lives and prevented severe disease in many more people. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion.
Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.